Okay, welcome back, everyone. Uh, For those of you who are joining us for the first time, this is Cranked and Ranked. Uh, We talk about uh, bands' discographies and other sort of shit that's rock and metal related, and we rank shit. Um, I'm not going to go too much into introductions because you're listening to part two of this particular episode. So um, go back and listen to part one, and we'll do all our introductions. But Really, what we got to do this week is hop right back in, ranking the uh, Motley Crue discography. Uh, last week, we got shit. We only did four albums apiece. That's how much we talk. And you know what? I think some people out there, they love those long-winded podcasts. So we'll just, we'll just roll with it. I think that's Hell a good yeah. idea. So uh, joining me as usual is Mr. Eddie Sparks. Say hello, sir. Bonjour. He's, he, he is not French. <laughs> <laughs> nor am Pardon? i um so uh, but yeah let's jump let's jump right back into it so we we were we were taking our turns and we left off with number five and so i'm gonna throw it over to eddie sparks here to uh get us rolling with number five okay number five uh my number five is the self-titled motley crew 1994 album all right this is the only album with John Karabi. It, it, it has a distinctively grungier and heavier feel. The guitar tone is beef, pure chug. Yeah. I love it. I love that guitar tone. Bob Rock's production, as you say, just oh, really hits it right in that perfect chug spot. Uh, the riffs on it are great. I love the production. Uh, it's virtually a different band, but in a good way it's like it's almost like a prototype of the modern hard rock sound of today john karabi's voice in particular is just as good if not technically much better than vince neils but vince does bring a certain character to the band which is undeniable um you know you, you hear vince's voice and you will think motley crew uh, whereas you hear John Karabi's voice, you think, God, that sounds fucking cool. You know, <laughs> yeah. that, that kind of just real good, um, rock voice. Um, there is a, there is a band called Hardline who started out as kind of a glam hard rock thing that sounded a lot like the precursor to this. And their singer is a lot like John Karabi. If like if I remember it right, it's a while since I've listened to that album. It's called Double Eclipse, I think. It's by a band called Hardline. I think I've heard it. Yeah. That's a little shout out there. I thought I'd just do for a small, smaller, less <laughs> successful glam band for the Hardline yeah. fans out there. <laughs> anyway, the uh, the album is a bit long. It that's an affliction that a lot of '90s albums suffer. Yeah, from due to the CD boom, you know, you only got to look at Load and Reload for an example of <laughs> like how much music did you say we can fit on an album? Eighty minutes. We'll do two loads of eighty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I'm just gonna go right into the tracks. You know, power to the music. Excellent grooving opening track. 
Uncle Jack channels early Alice in Chains and keeps the grunge vibes going strong. And the breakdown at the end is extremely hard not to get your head banging to. Like, you don't even realise it's happening. I don't even realise it's happening until the song is over. And then I, then I go and take two paracetamol pills because I get a headache. <laughs> um, but yeah. um, Hooligan's Holiday, as Stephen had mentioned previously, fucking amazing song. Yeah. It, to me, it's, again, bringing out some of that facelift era Alice in Chains vibe. And it really does, in parts, remind me of the song Sunshine with a little bit of Stone Temple Pilots core thrown in there for good measure. But sure. that, that song in particular, really, I, I had to stop myself and think for a minute, is this just not, you know, unreleased Alice in Chains with a different vocalist? Because <laughs> there, there, are, there are points where it convinces you otherwise that it's, that it's a Motley Crue album. But Misunderstood, you know, the ballady track uh, coming in at number four, it's the longest track on the record coming in at nearly seven minutes, but due to the grungy, sludgy vibes of this record, these longer tracks fit their length. And again, I can hear some extreme influence on this one in the in the vocals. Um, Love Shine carries a similar vibe to its predecessor, but comes in as the shortest track on the record, which I thought was an interesting pairing to have the longest one next to the shortest one and to kind of balance out the energy a little bit because they're both quite acoustic in parts um you know poison apples is the first song on the album that sounds like anything reminiscent of 80s crew it could have appeared on girls or feel good with maybe a little more 80s production on it it even has that like rock and roll piano riff which was something that they had done in the past hammered again also feels more glam metal than albeit albeit a heavier version but not quite as grunge as the first three three tracks um till death to us part i like i really like this song track that is reminiscent of dio era black sabbath songs like heaven and hell and sign of the southern cross to me with that real plodding feel great use of dynamics this album is 100% the most underrated album in their discography. I can, I can confidently say, had this album not have been by Motley Crue and shit on because it was Motley Crue, it could have been, it could have been huge. It could have been much bigger. It could have kind of, kind of spearheaded bringing hard rock back from that massive blow that grunge had, had dealt it. And, um, Kind of to echo that, the the Welcome to the Numb, that, that song, reminds me of the Lizard album by Saigon Kick. That, oh, yeah. er, that early 90s psyched out, groovy, hard rock sound that's like, it's not glam, but it's, it's not grunge or alt metal either. It kind of straddles this weird line between the two. They, they, they fit it, Saigon Kick and and like extreme and bands like that. It was all yeah. It was all very like very talented people making hard rock music, but it wasn't. It was almost like serious hard rock music with a yeah. harder edge. I've heard extreme referred to as the thinking man's glam. Like <laughs> okay, I could see that. Yeah. And and you know, 
if you if you look into the lyrics and things, it is like you say, like a much more serious version of this, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll sound, but infused with you know much more socially aware lyrics. And it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting combo that the early nineties gave us was that crossover between the glam and the grunge thing and that like alt metal thing going on as well. And that's, that's why I'd say the period between 1987 and 1992 is probably my favorite five years in music. I I, I agree with you totally. Solely based on so much interesting stuff going on, but that's, that's a, that's a talk for another time. I am, I am going to go back into the Motley Crue 94 album Smoke the Sky, it's a faster track, but still carrying over that grunge feel. Very chuggy, almost groove metal in parts. Dropping Like Flies straddles that line between 80s metal and grunge once again. A bit of Stone Temple Pilots in there, maybe in the clean parts especially. Drift Away is the ballad of the album, and a pretty cool one, a pretty good one, considering it's 1994 at this point. And there was nothing more uncool in rock because the grunge thing was was deep into its into its thing at this point. I don't know, had Kurt had Kurt passed away yet once this album came out? Or was this um, just before? I believe he had already passed away at, yeah, at that he, point. It was quite early in the in the year, wasn't it? April? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So yeah, this I think this would have been after that. Yeah, so like I say, I love glam and I love grunge, which is probably why I feel so conflicted in all areas of my life because you know those, <laughs> the, those two hate each other. So, <laughs> but anyway, like hypnotized is almost like a funk metal track. I like it a lot. Um, Baby kills standard early nineties glam metal track, a little more stripped back and dirty, but still retaining that good time feel. Living in the Know finishes the album with possibly the closest track to their 80s work on this record. And overall, after that um, absolute wall of information I just hurled at the listener, (laughs) um, overall, this record is an awesome, underrated record and deserves much more recognition, in my opinion. Cool. I I would agree with you on that. Thank you Um, for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so moving on, uh, to my number five, my number five is the 1985 album theater of pain. Um, this album has a lot wrong with it, but to me, the it's, it's in, it's within the classic era of Motley Crue. So there's an era, an era, there's a, an aura of enjoyability if for lack of a better term there uh, for this album that keeps it you know, from being like way low on the list, but yeah, um, the, this is one where I can pick out songs specifically to point out why the album isn't very good. Um, city boy blues is probably one of the worst album openers. It's like, there's no energy to it. It is so whatever of a song. It sounds like the kind of song that should be mid or late album. Like it should once you've already established an album, that's when you throw in a song like City Boy Blues. Um and then of course you got Smoking in the Boys Room, which um I actually enjoy this version more than yeah. the original version. I think it's it's a very fun, well done song. It's a classic song 
at this point. Um, <clears throat> but really, my biggest gripe about this album is the production, which it's interesting because three albums in a row were produced by Tom Worman, and mm. he only necessarily got one right. And so I don't know what happened, but the worst is Theater of Pain. The guitar is so weak all the way through this album. It yeah. sounds... So I, I, have, I have two theories. Either A, they recorded the guitar with the guitar turned down very low for whatever fucking reason, mm. so there's no presence behind it or weight behind it, or they just turned down, down the distortion for whatever fucking weird reason. Um, and so it really, unfortunately highlights the fact that there are a lot of really lazy blues rock style riffs on here. The riffs are just not very good. The whole album just seems very full of recycled leftover material. Um, and then you get home sweet home. So it's almost like you have this motherfucker of a classic, well-written, amazing song in the middle of this sort of shit fest that didn't really go the way that, that they wanted it to go. Um, Home Sweet Home is the saving grace of the album. It's argue, arguably the beginning of the power ballad craze, Yeah, um, you know, w- with that one. But it's such a great song. There's no arguing that for me. But then you get into other things like there's a song called Tonight We Need a Lover. And if you listen to the lyrics of that song, I'm 100% sure it's about a gangbang. Because yeah. <laughs> even even in the title, we don't need one lover for each of us. We all just need a lover. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit of a scary song. Um, but that also comes on board with all of the lazy lyrics on here. Like some of the lyrics are he, like whoever wrote them, whether it was Nikki or Vince, they just wrote down something maybe right before they recorded it and said, oh, this is fine. This will be fine. Let's just put an album out. Um, but then we'll get to the most frustrating song on the album, Use It or Lose It, which the guitar, there's two guitars that were recorded, one with a shitload of, of, of distortion, one with no distortion at all, and they put the non-distortion one way louder. So the riff is... And it, there's no there's no heaviness to the riff, and that has to be the fault of Tom Worman. It, it has yeah. to be his fault. I don't know if the dude was doing a lot of drugs with the band and he just wasn't <laughs> paying attention. But if somebody in the band made that decision to make the guitar weak as fuck on a fast song, I, I don't even know where to begin on how fucking awful it is. So, um, yes. So it's just. There's a lot of what the fuck kind of moments on this album. And overall, it is 90% forgettable. But because we're talking about these albums in 2020, the fact that it has that big old 80s vibe going on yeah. makes me makes it kind of a, a I don't know, like a... I, I don't know. I don't even know what to describe it as. It's just something that like, I, I find it enjoyable, but if somebody came and said that album is fucking dog shit, I'd be like, I know it is. It really is. But I, but I, but I enjoy it for some weird reason. So I, th- so, I think yeah. that, I think that album is, it's more of a vibe 
album than it is a, a strength album. I, yeah. I think that one, you know, it, if you wanted to hear 80s Motley Crue, then, you know, by all means, put on Theatre of Pain. It's not, their yeah. most, their, it's not their most impressive work, but um, it does have that real mid-80s vibe. And I, and I would say that the, the production on this, you know, had this album been produced like Girls, 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 it would have been a much better album, I, I feel. I guess so, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I really like the production on Girls, 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 and I'll get onto that later on, but... Um, did So, yeah, no, you, I'm done. You move on to yeah, your number five. you're pretty much on... I, I can't believe how well this is flowing, because up next, number four, <laughs> number four for me is uh, Theatre of Pain. Nice. Uh you know the the band were off their heads on drugs by this point uh it's the lightest and poppiest album from their 80s work you know even down to their image and i think what you said with maybe making you know the production a bit lighter was a subconscious effort to make the album coincide with the band's new image because they'd gone from like it, it, it's an easy thing to miss, but when you when you think about it, like the first album, they were like poor street punks wearing, you know, what they had, you know, and it was a limited wardrobe. They still had like kind of outfits, but it was very just leather jacket and teased hair. Yeah. Then then you get to shout at the devil. Shout at the devil is like full on satanic body armor. You know, it's almost like very medieval influenced. Um, and then you get to Theatre of Pain. Theatre of Pain, they decided, hey, you know pink? Pink is a cool color. Let's, <laughs> let's cover ourselves in pink and polka dots and stripes. Let's, let's be super glam. And, the, <laughs> and then after realizing that that was panned by all of the metal fans, they went back to kind of the street look on the following two um, records with Girls, Girls, Girls and Dr. Feelgood. But I digress, going back to Theatre of Pain, um, like you say, it's way more polished, um, perhaps overly polished, you know, uh, to the I point... Don't, I of, don't know, because I would use the word polished to mean something that 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 doesn't show its weird rough edges that weren't done very well. I think there's so much exposed, not produced well yeah. things on this album but i mean this is this is your take so go ahead <laughs> per, perhaps polished it is it isn't the word for it perhaps um that they, they tried to clean up their image a little bit and i i think not to make themselves seem any less you know dangerous or rock and roll but to make themselves perhaps a little more appealing to a wider audience you know if, if they're going out there dressing with like a lot more um pink lipstick on and stuff they might you know attract a bit more of a feminine kind of presence i don't know what the real motivation behind that was um but it could have literally just been a side effect of the cocaine for all i know um <laughs> but yeah but it's 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 the most i've i was racking my brain for this it's possibly got the most 80s looking album art in their catalog with its color palette but, but I actually like the album cover, though. I lo I love the album cover of this album. I love. I'm a big album art guy, 
And to be honest, like, you know, I think this is one of their stronger album covers because, yeah. you know, when, when you think about it, Too Fast for Love is just literally a close-up of Vince's crotch, which is, I think it's an homage to a Rolling Stones cover as well, isn't it? Sticky, sticky Fingers, yeah. that That's the one, yeah. But even, even so, like... To have like something actually painted, something designed, I think is cooler than like a photo of them on Harley's looking cool. Yeah. And it's almost like know, the it's almost like the album cover sets up that the album should be really great, and it doesn't yeah. live up, doesn't live up to the album cover. <laughs> I've I've got a big thing with like album art. Like I will I will envision the album art in my head while listening to the album and I I do it completely subconsciously and I have like kind of the colors of the album art and things in my head and I'm trying to match them up a little bit and like I'll be like oh a Slayer album Slayer likes blood blood is red <laughs> this is blood this is blood red this is fucking sick you know and then I'll listen to this album and I'll think wow you know home sweet home sounds like a pink purple song you know it's very 80s in its vibe I you know that could just be me with a deep seated, deep seated, you know, psychological issue. But <laughs> <laughs> on the on the flip side, uh, it it makes for interesting conversation. So um, yeah, I th- I think this album deserves a little bit more credit than I feel people give it. Personally, I feel like you know the song opens with City Boy Blues, which, like you say, is is a strange way to open such a record. You know, because I will agree, it doesn't feel like an opening track. And, you know, the guitar sound is weaker than the two albums that bookend it. Um, but I think um, this laid the groundwork for the sound that they would continue to develop here on in up until Dr. Feelgood. Because that same kind of slide guitar that would become prominent in the leads of um uh girls 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 album and the dr feelgood album that begins here so i i can appreciate kind of the groove elements to some of this stuff you know i never realized how um groove oriented a lot of glam is yeah but um now it you know now it adds up it does have that rock and roll kind of swagger to it it's Um, there's a lot of blues elements in yes those bands definitely And that brings me to kind of a 12-bar blues kind of song with Smoking in the Boys' Room, which is a cover of Brownsville Station. Uh, But this song has a delightfully mid-'80s Twisted Sister-esque high school video, and it's it's definitely a classic crew track at, 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 at this point. And I just loved, you know, MTV's... Really, you know, it, it's funny now, but back then it was like, we're making a statement. We don't want your parents to like us, you know. And all the stuff with like D. Snyder and the PMRC always makes me crease up laughing because, you know, you've got all of these old dudes in suits, you know, sat there. And in comes this dude with a huge perm and a denim vest, pulls out this eloquently written speech and utterly destroys like this generation trying to trying to shut him up and i just love that yeah and i and i feel like you know this was around in like the the mid 80s so this album definitely has 
the mid eighties vibe. And while yes, it, it it can feel a little bit coked out at times with its um, you know, both imagery and sound, you know, I think you know, louder than hell is is um groovy as hell. It has one of my favorite Motley solos, and I can't tell you how many times, uh, how many times I've tried to hit the high notes in this song. Yeah, especially when I like it. That's definitely a standout from the album among yeah. all the other th- songs. Yeah, yeah. Like keep keep your eye on the money is uh, catchy, but so far in the album, it feels the most generic so far. And yeah. I think that I think that's what weighs this album down is is that it doesn't have much that sets it apart from the rest of the glam coming out at the time because the only thing setting it apart is that perhaps it's kind of weaker. Um, and bearing in mind, I am I am being harsh, but I, I I do love this album, but I can appreciate the things that are glaringly, you know, wrong with it compared to the rest of their eighties work. Yeah. Home Sweet Home um, is one of the most iconic songs. Um, also, like you said, a major force in cr- in creating the big power ballad boom of the uh, mid to late 80s when, you know, because when Motley Crue did it, it was like, okay, that worked for those guys. Let's do it. And all of a sudden, I mean, I know there had been a couple of ballads up to that point, but Motley Crue... Motley Crue are a strange one because I I think to myself, you know, I bring up Motley Crue nowadays and people are much more, you know, familiar with bands in like the mainstream. I don't know if it's the same in the US, but over here, Motley Crue doesn't really get talked about. You know, it's always um, Bon Jovi, Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard, those kind of bands from the scene. And they always they tend to gloss over Motley Crue in, yeah, in that, the UK. Yeah, that's not the case here, such as that's why we got a movie um, made yeah. here. Because um, they are a band that if you talk about 80s metal, Motley Crue's usually one of the first names that you hear mentioned. So it's a very different thing over here. Yeah, it's such a strange thing because like, I, um, I remember bringing up Motley Crue with like someone – who had been, who had lived in the eighties and was into bands like Bon Jovi and like White Snake, and I was like, uh, "Excuse me, how have you not heard Motley Crue?" And they were like, "I don't know. They must have been like more of a U.S. thing." But like, I, I it just dumbfounds me that I've never really known many people that know Motley Crue, but but know stuff like Bon Jovi, White Snake, you know, Def Leppard, and stuff like that. Well, as, also, a as, lot of those much. things. There, there. To me. Like in in 1985, when Theater of Pain came out, I think that that kind of music was popular, but it wasn't mm. like fucking massive. And I think it got massive when Slippery When Wet came out. I think yeah. once Bon Jovi kicked in, and then soon after that, you had Hysteria, you had the White Snake album where he revamped yeah. the band all, you know, and made them all hair metal. So I think at that point, everything got way bigger. But in but by 85. I think even though they were a popular band, they weren't as massive as they would get. You know, and and just just cycling back to, back to that, you know, I I didn't realize until like the last year how American my taste really is in bands and stuff because, you know, I'm I'm from the UK and I suppose maybe it's just hearing the UK bands all the time 
I'm a little bit desensitized to it now. You know, there's only so many times I can hear Paranoid and Ace of Spades and uh, the Trooper and that. And, and, and there, uh, there is, you cannot hear the Trooper enough times. <laughs> yeah. The, the Trooper, the Trooper is a stretch. I'll admit the Trooper is a stretch. But um, yeah, I, I feel like maybe it really is just a, just a national thing at that point. You know, because yeah. I, I know I know a lot of people that do recognize Motley Crue, but like Motley Crue is never the band that pops up in conversation when I bring up glam in my own personal experience. It is like Motley Crue, are they a little bit like Bon Jovi? And I suppose if you look at like record sales and stuff and, and looking at it through maybe a maybe a younger point of view, um, me being. 22 obviously you know i didn't grow up with motley Crue, and you know bon jovi uh guns and roses got huge anyway you know um like mega mega star huge um you had bon jovi bon jovi kind of stood the test of time throughout the 90s they were one of the few that kind of managed to hold on they did do a big rebrand though like you say um but yeah, it's it's always been a weird thing for me with with Motley Crue because it's they didn't sell the most out of all these bands, but they are the band that kind of music journalists and stuff will say is the glam band. And I've often tried to put together a big four of glam, and I I can never quite do it because there's so many contributing factors that I often end up feeling like outrank one another, and I just that really is a video I'm going to have to make and it's going to yeah. be a long one because it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah, um, I, I, I do think that Motley Crue, I might have the timeline a little bit screwed up, but I think that they were even before Rat. So I think that Motley Crue, when mm-hmm. it comes to the music that we talk about, when we talk about hair metal and 80s hard rock and that sound, I feel like Motley Crue was the first like yeah. they were the they were the, the at, there may have been other bands doing similar things but they were the first to blow up and put out an album and I might be wrong I know bands like Kicks and stuff had been going since like the 70s but I I do feel like Motley Crue when it comes to being in the spotlight they were the first so I feel like that's probably why they're especially over here they're talked about more Yeah I I think that 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 could be it you know and um yeah just to wrap up that tangent, yeah, I, I've, <laughs> yeah, it's just always dumbfounded me how over here Motley Crue kind of gets glossed over in in my experience. But anyway, go, going back into the uh, going back into the album uh, tonight. You, I mean, you you said it. <laughs> yeah, I I I feel like this album kind of bellows out of the speakers like a mating call. Like this is. This is the song that I would expect Motley Crue to follow up a ballad with. Like, okay, we've won the girl over. Now let's get to the uh, turn the cameras on, dudes. Like kind of thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. we we've <laughs> won the girl over. Yeah, <laughs> and I, and I kind of like I kind of tried getting into that kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll mindset by turning around and saying, "Home sweet home" is like the story portion of the porno. And then this is, quote unquote, the good part that you skip to it in that kind of context. But I, I do think, um, I, I do love Home Sweet Home. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I do love tonight because it contains 
my favourite chord progression, I have affectionately dubbed the Maiden progression because it has that kind of thing in there at one point. I I can't remember the speed of it, of course, but that that's that's a maiden progression to me. You know that, um, like "Dirty Diana" by Michael Jackson uses it. There's a <laughs> there, there's a lot of um, '80s songs that use that songwriting technique, and and I don't hear it anywhere in like modern music, whereas it used to be all over the place back in the '80s, and I, that's something I deeply deeply miss and would like to see come back in the 2020s is that is that specific chord progression because it's just it's just so powerful and it translates to to all genres pretty much um i mean i'd love to hear a jazz song with it (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah anyway um use it or lose it it's pretty much is pretty much speed metal at that point with its double kick drumming and intense riffing Again, I know I've said this before. This song is like a car chase. It's 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 something I'd break the speed limit to. Um, I didn't notice at the time the um, clean guitar problem that you were talking about, but I'll have yeah. to go back. I'll have to go back you, and listen to you it. You won't be able to unhear it, so I feel like I ruined it for you. That that one, yeah. yeah. And it's got. You say one's distorted and one's clean. You, you can hear in the background a distorted guitar, but the one that's front and center is a is a is a clean electric guitar playing this riff that clearly wasn't made to be played clean. But it's, <laughs> it just sounds weird. The first thing I'm going to do after we've done this podcast is <laughs> is look at that, and I'm going to ruin this album. <laughs> um, but yeah, like. Um, the next song save our souls brings back this slow groove that they began to utilize on this album but it doesn't stand out to me at all like it i'm debating whether or not this one is a skipper to be honest it doesn't quite jump out to me like the rest yeah um raise your hands to rock oh shit i can't believe i didn't talk about that song (laughs) oh uh, are you gonna say the same thing as i did are you are you gonna say the same thing is, are we going to say I want to rock? <laughs> I was I was going to say raise your hands to rock is basically feel like making love by bad company. But it's it's totally that, but also yeah. if you think of I want to rock, rock. Dun, dun, yeah. dun, this is this is raise your hands to rock, rock. Dun, yeah, dun, dun, yeah. Dun, dun. as well. <laughs> but also the title raise your hands to rock what the fuck does it mean? Yeah. It almost seems like in this day and age, they put, they went to a, a hard rock song name generator and it just <laughs> yeah. came up with raise your hands to rock. All right. That's the name of this song. What does it mean? I don't fucking know. Just do it. It's got rock and roll words in it. It's like those, um, it's like those videos where, where people, have you seen these where they'll, they'll like, they'll put all of the lyrics to every song by a band ever into like uh, an a bot and the bot will then be programmed to write the lyrics to that band's song uh, yeah and I've seen that. they'll yeah I, I love stuff like that and so that's what it seems like the title yeah. is fucking weird but I'm, i didn't mean to step on your your thing so you keep oh oh no 100 that was just that was just a little point i wanted to make but yeah um <laughs> I completely forgot about Raise Your Hands to Rock uh, until re-listening to this album. I feel 
I feel bad that popular opinion kind of subconsciously led me away from this album until re-listening to it for this episode because I do feel as though it has redeeming qualities 100% and it does have that 80s motley aura that you know obviously you mentioned as well and um final track on it fight for your rights is exactly what I'd imagine a good party sounding like and this isn't even the Beastie Boys one, but like you said, it's almost like they took a bunch of 80s hard rock and metal buzzwords <laughs> and just fucking put them on a dartboard and whatever dart hits what word is the next song. And it it does come off quite cookie cutter, this album. Um, I would say that Fight For Your Rights is a good album closer. You know, 80s glam metal done right. It's uplifting, dark, but powerful and generally great to just drink to <laughs> um but all in all this this album is better than i remember it and i'll be more likely to play it in the future than i would have been had i not given it a proper re-listen but i do agree that the following albums i've put above it are leagues above it in terms of both songwriting and production well, so yeah that is well then let's move on to some of those albums so hell yeah um, my number four is uh, Girls, Girls, Girls from 1987. Um, first off, also produced by Tom Werman. And this is another weird album because I feel it's very uneven because um, it has songs that are so fucking good, like Wild Side. Wild yeah. Side is probably my favorite Motley Crue song. It's such a good one. Um, it's just got so many cool parts. It's so well-written. It's so energetic and fun. Um, and then, you know, obviously Girls, 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 which is now like, you know, the basically millions of strippers have, have, have danced. To, there's probably a stripper right now somewhere in the world dancing to that song as we're talking. I'd, um, I'd be willing to put money on that. <laughs> so it, it does have like a cla- classic quality to the album. And, and also, yeah, it is pretty clear that they – they steered a little bit more into the blues rock era area and shed their glamness a little bit on this. Um, just, I, I, it makes sense because clearly they saw the error of their ways with theater of pain and they were trying to, I don't know, make something a little more or, organic and, and real rock and roll. Um, even yeah. down to the album cover, it's all like, Oh yeah, no, we're not those guys anymore. We now have motorcycles. <laughs> Um, but honestly, the album to me crashes really quickly because the song, the songwriting is not that much better overall than, uh, than theater of pain and the production. It's almost like on some songs, they put a whole lot of effort into making it sound really good. And then other ones, they just did whatever the preset thing was. Okay, we before we go crazy, these are just album filler songs, so let's not go crazy trying to make them sound amazing. So yeah. it just, it sounds, it sounds kind of all over the place. Um, and, and to me, it's just barely better than Theater of Pain. Um, but just the album on just based on on uh wild side alone um i don't know that it, it carries a lot of weight for me but <clears throat> um a question that i often ask people when i when we talk about girls 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 is what the fuck is nona and why is it on this album <laughs> it, it is really unnecessary it is it it's literally nothing happens in the song 
it doesn't feel like it fits in at all. It feels like they've for like, I don't know. I don't know if Nikki six just had this song, this idea and he just desperately wanted it on this album. And so it just, it's weird. It's a weird speed bump in the album where it just kind of goes, what is it? And then the album continues again. Yeah. So, um, but on, unfortunately the album doesn't really recover. It's just all these recycled bluesy rock riffs that could have been written by any number of bands doing music at the same time. And unfortunately, if you're really talking about what was going on with music around that time, I'm, I'm, my money's on appetite for destruction. Like that album is literally a giant, you know, death star, uh, you know, (laughs) eclipsing this tiny little planet of girls, girls, girls. So it doesn't matter how much they really tried on this album, what was going on at that time. It makes the album feel like, um, too little, too late. Like nice try guys. Maybe we'll hook up again next time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, but, but like I said, there, there are minor improvements over theater of pain. Um, but it's still not, not an amazing album to me. And that's all I have to say. Ooh. Um, I, I might have a hot take on that later, later down the line. All right. Okay. Uh, so my number three. Now here, it, it might be a controversial one to have it this low, knowing its icon status. But it, it, it got to the top three. So yeah. I, I've... Uh, it's still in a, in the high higher league of all the all of these albums, um, and I I'm just gonna go out here and say it. This is probably the biggest like leap in quality of all of their albums to me, personally. Shout at the devil. Oh shit! Major improvement on their previous album. Um, production is better. The band sounds better too. They sound more refined. They know what they're doing a lot more. And I'm just going to jump right into the track by track because this album is just banger central, but I felt the need to, to dissect it a little bit. Okay. So, um, in the beginning is your oh so 80s post-apocalypse intro with uh, <laughs> N- Nikki putting on a British accent for that added drama. You know, shout out to Britain on that one. Uh, <laughs> is it, doesn't it feel good to live in the country where when people want to sound very serious, they, they fake your accent. <laughs> I think, I think the funny, the funny part is though, like, despite the fact that I, I have a pretty good speaking voice on stuff like this, like if you were to enter my household with like my, my family, we're from Cornwall. So we're, we're Cornish. So we're in like the proper Southwest, I, I suppose, I suppose it's probably one of the more rednecky parts of Britain. So if if you were to come into the house, you'd be met with, "Right, Matt, how are you? Oh yeah. Oh, how are you, Matt? Oh, right on, Matt. Yeah. See, try try translating that. <laughs> I just want to know what Matt means. <laughs> um, Matt is basically um, mate. But, oh, okay. Um, I should have known but that. It, it it's like a it, it's almost like a little bit of a. a it's like the UK's answer to the kind of Southern twang where, where it's like, um, it, I suppose anywhere else in the UK, it would be referred to as like how a farmer would talk. Like, I'm a farmer, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it is a very rural thing in Britain. Um, okay. I think, you know, I've, 
you know, the further back generation-wise you go, um, voice crack there a little bit, sorry, from doing all the other accents and trying to find my original <laughs> voice again. But yeah, the wide variety of accents in Britain never ceases to amaze me, considering its size, you know. But yeah, Nikki manages to put on a pretty decent... Um, you know, I actually had to look into who did the voice only to find that, you know, Nikki had decided to talk like David Coverdale for a moment. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's a really cool way to open an album. And like, I suppose at that point in um, music, I don't think there was a lot of that going on. So for like a young kid to find this band and to put this on for the first time... I mean that must have that must have been a goosebumps moment for for some eighties kids to be like, "What's coming next? This sounds tense." It's it's like, it's very similar to well, an album that came out the same year. If you're talking about the number of the beast, like you hear, yeah, the, you know, yeah. The, so, but but they couldn't have ripped them off because it came out the same year. So, but yeah, it's 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 such a it's such a cool little convention that that. 80s music has it has such a theatric element to it yeah that you know th this almost feels like it could be a concept album the way it starts you know and then comes right in after that um after that little intro to shout at the devil with the dun 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 really already shows off a much better version of the band's sound in both production and songwriting you know it's exciting it's it's much thicker it's more fleshed out um and it's hard not to get on board with the shout 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 at the devil thing going on you know, raising your fist that is that is like a call to arms of a song agreed you know that that is how to gather how to gather your fans that that was that was a side note that was actually my daughter's first favorite song when she was like one or one and a half <laughs> that's she, so cool she would sing along to the shout in the back and then always ask me to play that song so <laughs> that's awesome it, it even connects with the youngest of our generations i will say my uncle has um has a uh i've got a cousin and she was very young at this time and my uncle was driving along with White Snake's Judgment Day, like cranked, and she was in the back. And he looked in the rearview mirror, and you know that riff. She's just in the back like this, with like the full-on face and everything. And she's like, <laughs> yep. "Yeah." Pulling that kind of like in, in stank podcast face. world, yeah, you couldn't see he was making the <laughs> shit, the, the, damn that shit's good face with the frowny face, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but anyway, let's get into the first Motley Crue song I ever heard. Oh, all right. Looks that kill. I was 11, and I had just gotten into metal through Guitar Hero Five. I love it just as much as I did back then, and I had a great time you know, singing along while trying to play the guitar on the game at the same time and trying to hit those high notes, you know. And I just started puberty, so they were very all over the place. <laughs> you know? so, She's got looks that girl! So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, 
going into Bastard, one of their speedier tracks. I mean, this one goes hard. Love it. Um, uh, tidbit about that song. That's one of the songs that was on the PMRC's list of songs that, that needed to be banned. Filthy 15, wasn't it? The, yeah. The, yeah. What a playlist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone, I, surely there's a Filthy 15 playlist on Spotify. There's, there has to be. If not, somebody on YouTube, I'm sure, did it. 100% has to exist. Um, and then after Bastard, you get God Bless the Children of the Beast. It's it's a cool little interlude which like breaks the album up a little bit. Only really works in context though. Like I wouldn't seek this track out. No. You know, it's it's an interlude. You know, much like Nona, which I will get on in a minute. I do know a bit of a tidbit of information on Nona. Um, the cover of Helter Skelter is badass. Yes. Like way way to take the Beatles and metal up an already considerably heavy track considering it's a Beatles song, you know, and they, they added that um, minor third to the riff instead of just having that droney kind of thing that the Beatles did. But God, that's just such a cool version of that song. I love that one. Um, Red Hot is the double bass track of the record. Tommy Lee always needs to break out one. And... Um, I doubt the thrash guys would be able to fault this other than it not being like 240 BPM. Like I, I actually think that this, that this is good speed metal at this point, that song. Yeah, pretty much. You know, I think they, I think they had the capability to be a speed metal band. Had they had the glam thing, not taken them, you know, you got songs like Livewire. you know, Mick Mars is down picking all of those. You know, that's that's James Hetfield level stuff, yep. you know. Um, now, come to the second Motley Crue track I ever heard. <laughs> and that was, now, this is, this is Eddie's story time. Uh, I heard this on the soundtrack to GTA Vice City and 11-year-old me was having a whale of a time as it had come onto the in-game radio at the perfect time. And it's... I can't remember the name of the mission, but it's the mission where you have to raid this gang house and you're shooting at the bad guys on the roof from a helicopter with a minigun. And that song had come on. And as the helicopter peeked over the horizon, the riff started and it was like, and it was almost like Fortunate Son in a Vietnam film. <laughs> and I just felt so like 11-year-old me was in God mode at that point. And I have a massive nostalgic connection to this song. And I love like the Phrygian, like Eastern tones of the... And then the like kind of Arabian kind of sounding solo with those cool Eastern melodies in there. I, I really love it. I love that song. And uh, that's probably a dead giveaway for what my favorite Motley track is. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, Knock 'em Dead Kid gets stuck in my head way too easily. It's such a catchy song. Um, I've touched on this one already, but like this really does feel like a better version of Too Fast for Love. Um, like with, with uh, not Knock 'em Dead Kid. Um, too fast for love 10 seconds to love sorry yeah. i got that mixed up with my notes there but i th i think they really did just listen to the previous album and think hey you know that that title was pretty catchy 
do you reckon we could change it slightly and make a different song <laughs> and it, you know and milk it for all it's worth and then finally we have the song danger now i love 80s chorus clean guitar so that inf- that intro is a winner for me already you know vince sounds really cool on this uh, on this track too and the album as a whole that's a great and album look- closer too i think yeah, and 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 the little bit of synth thrown in for like good measure gives it that extra cheese that I love and expect from eighties metal. <laughs> and uh, overall, this is an essential eighties metal record, you know. And you know, I know the purists will turn around and say, "Oh, Motley Crue were a bunch of posers." Like, dude, this album, regardless of image, was just fucking great. Yeah. yeah, and you, you and, and and you said an important thing there. You just used the term metal on its own, and I would say for this particular album, that's what it is. It's just an '80s metal album. Like it doesn't, the glam part's totally gone. It doesn't yeah. fit in with the hair metal stuff. It just feels like a really heavy early '80s metal album. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's heavier than shit that Judas Priest were doing. So I mean, <laughs> and, yeah. they're, like, and they're considered the metal gods. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, like Judas Priest have had a have had a wild career as well because they have just flip flopped between like all sorts of genres. But like, that's a that's a that's a discussion for another episode. Yeah, but uh, yeah, they've right. definitely experimented in their time. <laughs> so, are, so are you done with that? I am done with Shout at the Devil. Cool. So, uh, moving on to my number three. So, we're getting to the point here where. Um, we have now gone from albums where I, I could complain about things to three albums that I think are fucking amazing and are the reason why Motley Crue is a, a band that I still talk about today. Um, the number three for me is the 81 debut, Too Fast for Love. And these are ones where like I, I, had, I had a lot of notes written for other albums, but yeah. these, these last three albums, it's just like, through four or five bullet points because I'm like, I, I know, I know these albums so well and I love them so yeah. much that, that I, it's all in my head, but, um, that you mentioned it before, but just the intro of live wire, live wire is so good. Even today sounds really fucking good, but I'm going to take this opportunity to start talking about something that I, I feel it's kind of, it's kind of weird that it's taken us an entire episode and a half to get to. Um, Tommy Lee as a drummer. Yeah. Um, The dude fucking kills. But not only that, from the get-go, from the first track on the first Motley Crue album, he has his own thing going. He does things on the drums that stick out, like on, especially on, on this album, the, the crash cymbal stops, the mutes that he does. And and the random cowbell thrown in and his weird starts and stops. And the fact that he, he lays on that fucking kick drum so hard. Like there's such a stomp and I don't know a lot of other drummers that were doing anything near what he was doing, the style that he was doing. Like, sure, there were more talented drummers or more diverse drummers, but I think that when it comes to carving out a niche of who you are as a unique drummer right away, there's not a lot that fit in the same camp of, as Tommy Lee as, as doing that right out of the gate. So um, 
like I play the drums to Livewire more than I play air guitar. Like I'm more drumming along yeah. with Livewire. Um, and then, so I'll just throw out songs that I love. Um, I love Piece of Your Action. Um, not pe- Yeah, Piece of Your Action is a fucking great song. Um, but we talked about that, how the riff is kind of like rat. And I think that's probably what I like about it. Um, but the thing that you complained about with the, the production values not quite being there yet, I do agree with you, but I think that's a character in the album that really makes me love it. I love the raw punky vibe, um, the low, low fi. It's like they, it's almost like they had access to a fairly good studio, but they didn't have much time. And, um, I don't know. It just sounds like a raw, hungry band making a statement and doing something in that year that I don't really think a lot of other bands were doing. I think this was a unique album when it came out, and it's just a fucking hell of a de- debut album. Um, and that's that's really it. Like I could point out, you know, things that I like because there's a lot of cool riffs. There's a lot of great um, odd drum beats here and there that are thrown in. Um, and then Vince Neil, yeah, his voice does get better. And I do have a theory because if you listen to the song too fast for love, especially in the last chorus, it sounds almost chipmunky when he's singing. Yeah. It sounds like that. I have a theory that they were pressed for time. He either couldn't hit the notes or sang yeah. <laughs> the whole thing out of key. And so they just pitched up. They, they increased the pitch on his vocals to make it fit. That, yeah. I don't know if that's true, but that's my theory. Cause otherwise, why would you make the vocals sound like that? It's very weird. But, um, but yeah, too fast for love, a fucking classic debut debut album. And, um, I still love it today. So there you go. Yeah. And, um, I, th- I think, just just cycling back to what you said about um, Tommy Lee, you know, I've always noticed those symbol chokes in particular, you know, that are just really sporadic. And he does it on, um, they're just so fast and and clean because he'll be like, he'll be playing like, dear, bigger, digger, bigger, digger, 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 and that little, just that little, it's just so it really injects unique personality into his playing. Yeah, it, it makes something that could be just an average, regular mid-paced rock beat and makes it something way more interesting. Yeah, and I, th- and I think that really is... Um, I think Tommy is, is an integral member to, to the band's sound. You yeah. know, he's got, a real, he's got a real swagger to him. But, uh, yeah. All so right. that was your number three. On to your number two, sir. Okay, silver medal goes to <laughs> Dr. Feelgood. Whoa! Okay. Dr. F- Dr. Feelgood is extremely high up, and it was extremely hard for me to pick between these two albums because these, these two are my favorite Motley records. But this one got beat out just a little bit, so I'm, I'm going to talk about this one. I could I I could have sworn this would be your number one. You know, I was thinking it initially, <laughs> you know, and and then I I listened back, you know. But anyway, here here it is. Best produced album of their 80s work thanks to Bob Rock. I will say it's definitely got the best production of of the two of my favorite albums. It's got chunky chunky tones. Uh it's their most successful album as far as I know, is it? I think so. I'm pretty it sure, has, yeah. Yeah, because um, it had quite a f- 
quite a lot of singles come from it as well. I think it had five. Yeah, like that's that's a big amount. That's that's black album level singles. Yep. You know, totally. Not 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 so much sales, but you know the amount of exposure they gave to it. Um, yeah. I mean, this is post rehab. It, it was dubbed the No Fucking Fun Tour. Um, <laughs> there was there was a lot of singles on it, and I'm just going to gonna go into my track by track, my trademark cool. track by tracks. So uh, it opens with the little intro, uh, like shout with. Um, Terror in Tinseltown, which is a possible callback, reminiscing much like the bridge in Kickstart My Heart. You know, because in the in both the song he says, uh, when we started this band, all we needed was a laugh. Years gone by, I'd say we kick some ass. And in the video to it, it shows flashbacks of their older videos and stuff. And I always thought that was a cute little reminiscent thing that they all they did on that record. Yeah. But um yeah. Going into track two, Dr. Feelgood, undisputed heavyweight banger. Every single Motley Crue fan loves this song. Like You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't want to be like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. He's on the car, Dr. Feelgood. Every time I'm in a pub or a bar, I just immediately seek out the jukebox and and find dr feelgood just to, pretty much just to, to test what their speakers are like yeah and um yeah i i i just love that song so much it's also i think it gets overlooked for how unique the riff is because, oh yeah because like when it, especially when it comes to molly crew riffs but it's like if you think about the riff, the dun 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 dun, like it's not it it's not a something that comes naturally to somebody trying to write hard rock. It's got a it's weird dancey quality, funky quality yeah. to it, but still being really heavy with the with the palm muting. So it's yeah, it's, it's it doesn't. I don't, I think it should get more credit for being a pretty unique riff, especially in Motley Crue. I think it had a little bit of that, like you know, funk metal influence. You know, Maybe, uh, yeah. I think it, I think it definitely has that, you know, booty shaking thing going on. <laughs> totally. But yeah, um, going into track three, slice of your pie. You know, that's you know, real subtle with its meaning. Uh, <laughs> we got to mention the guest vocals for Mr. Steven Tyler in that song too. Is there really? I completely glossed over that. The very beginning of the song, you hear a guy going. Ah! That's uh, that's Steven Tyler, and he does harmonies on it too in certain parts. Holy shit! I did not know that. I'm you always gonna br- I'm always gonna bring him up because I love Aerosmith. Throw in as much Aerosmith trivia <laughs> as you like, because there there are things that Steven Tyler has, has guested on, like on so many different albums. Yeah. Like Alice Cooper, he's guested on. Yep. I know that, but yeah. Wow, I did not know that's him at the start. Yep. Holy shit. Um, Rattlesnake Shake, you know, (laughs) it's Rattlesnake Shake. Now, this is the Rattlesnake... Because they didn't want to call it Jerk Me Off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Rattlesnake Shake song. Now, this, this, this one makes me laugh because I can't think of any other song called rattlesnake shake aside from the other rattlesnake shake which is by skid row which came out the same year now this is such a weird little coincidence or maybe not i don't know like how far apart these albums were released yeah but um 
I just thought it was it was. I remember seeing Rattlesnake Show. I was like, wait, did did Skid Row cover? Wait, what? What? They did two. They did the. They did two different songs of the same name in the same year. You know, that's something that's always played it on my mind. It's pretty weird. I wonder if it, 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 it's. I, I'd like to think that they had some sort of bet. Like maybe they were friends yeah. with Skid Row and they were like, hey, <laughs> I bet you can't write a song called Rattlesnake Shake. And they'd be like, I bet you can't. All right, we're going to do it. And then they both did it. <laughs> I, again, I'd be willing to put money on that. <laughs> <laughs> Same scene. But yeah, um, it's also got horns in it, which is a yeah. cool, cool little addition. Now, I've noticed in the, the late 80s and early, early 90s, sorry, that there is this thing with putting horns in metal. Now, that could be an extension of the funk thing, you know? Perhaps, it was, maybe... It was across the board. Like, it wasn't yeah. just in metal. Like, everyone started using horn sections in their songs around the mid to late 80s, it seems. Even fucking Tom Petty had, like, a horn yeah. section with him when he played live in, on one of those tours. I even think there's an Exodus song on Force of Habit that's got it in there. Yeah. Albeit, I think, I think it's a cover, but... Still, you know, horns on a on a thrash band's record. Wow. I, I, I'm honestly not opposed to it at all. I am 100% for uh, more <laughs> horns, more horns in metal. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Especially saxophone um, solos. Let's do more of those. Oh my God. Do not get me started on sax solos. <laughs> Top man. 10 saxophone solos. <laughs> Hell yeah. It would be really interesting to see a metal band that doesn't do any guitar solos and just uses a sax as a lead instrument, like oh has God. the riffs and stuff. That'd I'd be kind of cool. That would be kind of cool to see. Yeah. But yeah, um, Kickstart My Heart, racing anthem, mm-hmm. absolute tune, and it reminisces their, their career so far in, in, the, in the bridge. See, but that's a song that reminisces their career and does it without sounding forced and, and at the same time delivering a killer song, which they totally didn't really do with Saints of Los Angeles, except, <laughs> for, except for the song Saints of Los Angeles, but that's nowhere near a Kickstart My Heart. That's the thing. Like, if, on this album, they were just effortlessly cranking out bangers, and I, I don't know what happened along the line that just made them lose touch with like know. that kind of. But they wrote that them, kind of spark. According, well, according to credits, I don't. I don't know. I never know how much stock to put in album credits because yeah. you, I, I don't know if you can use songwriters to help you out that for a certain amount of money will allow you to not put their name on the song. I don't know how that works, but. For yeah. this particular album, they're all written by the Motley Crue guys. So that's if that's true, then that's fucking great. So perhaps you know, with the whole rehab thing, I, I'd imagine that had something to do with that. They had more time know. to write songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, without you, the first ballad on the album goes for the full-on lovey-dovey approach, um, which does feel a little bit out of place with their aesthetic but I'll forgive it, you know, because to go from when I get high, I get high on speed to without you <laughs> in my life. Um, but yeah, uh, same old situation. This is one of my favorite Motley Crue songs. Awesome song. It, it's got a real old time rock and roll feel to it in parts. And it, I, this is just a really strong album for me. I love this album. Sticky Sweet. Now, this here is one of many strip riff songs <laughs> that they've done. But this, to me, is one is, is a real defining one. 
because it, it's got that kind of it's got that kind of groove to it. It has that exact type of thing that I would imagine if if a movie shot a scene in a strip club, this is the kind of thing that it would have in the background. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not even ashamed to admit that I make that kind of analogy because this is fucking Motley Crue. They were known <laughs> for that. So <laughs> also I've always kind of felt just because not only is the song called Sticky Sweet, but there's a lyric that says the phrase Sticky Sweet in another song on this album. But yeah. but there's a part of me that goes, did the phrase Sticky Sweet exist before Def Leppard wrote it and pour some sugar on me? Because it's almost like they heard that phrase and said, we should write a song called Sticky Sweet. And that's what mm. Sticky Sweet sounds like to me. It, I'm gonna, it sounds weird when you say that over and over again. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it almost seems like they had that title and then decided to write a song around it because it's, it's one of my least favorites on the album. I will say Sticky Sweet is a phrase that I hear exclusively in the glam scene and <laughs> fucking nowhere else yeah. in any facet of life I've ever like like not even down to like sweets and candies themselves like I think it really is just a a a sex analogy that glam really latched onto <laughs> yeah yeah um anyway going going on to uh, she goes down. Now this is a <laughs> this is another really subtle uh, song. Not uh, <laughs> this little cheeky number about oral. It uh, carries a sim- similar vibe to the previous track, albeit it's a bit more upbeat in its tempo. But aside from that, it's still it's still s- sex glam. That is the that's the goal here. Yeah. yeah. Um. Don't Go Away Mad is one of those half ballad, half rocker songs they've done. And it has a real late 80s feel that I feel many bands would replicate. It's not a track I listen to often, though. Like, it's, it's, despite it's being a single, it to me still feels like a deep cut because probably because it's so late in the album. And finally, topping it off is Time for Change which always strikes me as kind of a bittersweet end to the 1980s. Like the last song of their classic studio album era, you know, excluding Primal Scream. This, the, like the song Time for Change and its sentiment hits me as if to say, Glam's days are numbered. I'd say the vibe of the 80s production lasted as late as 92 with albums like Adrenalized by Def Leppard, for example. But as a final legitimate 80s song, I could be completely off the mark here, but I interpret this song as a final goodbye to the 80s. I know that they tried to do kind of a we are the world kind of approach with this one as far as I'm yeah. aware lyrically. But I think this is the only one that has a, co- a co-writing credit from somebody else. Yeah. I just, you know, I this is one of the songs that I just took my own interpretation from it. And it's like, it's the last song of the 80s that they did. And the lyric is Time for Change, which, you know, would happen in 91 specifically. Yeah. And uh, if, when yeah. you put it that way, I like the song actually a little bit better. Because if, they, if that's how they wrote it, with that in mind, thinking that we're entering a new decade and things may not be the same as, as we you know, grew up with or whatever, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Like that, that's a better way to look at it. I always looked at it as some sort of really weak attempt to write, uh, 
an anthem for whatever the fuck they were trying to write an anthem for. Like they were trying to make a, 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 a Hey Jude moment or something where people would yeah. sing, people would sing time for change. Yeah. And it just, it doesn't work. It's, it just seems real, real, I don't know, not, not very inspired to me. Yeah, I th- I think I think I just get tied to to that little analogy that I that I make. So it so it adds like a little bit of a deeper meaning to it, you know. This is uh I think English was one of the only um subjects I was good at in school. So I <laughs> I can kind of infer hidden meanings, but you know, that might not be what they meant at all and and i could just be reading way too deeply into it but that's that's how i like to see that song i'm, I'm gonna go but, with your interpretation <laughs> but yeah the uh this feels to me like how to write a great glam metal album you know 101 from the songs to the production you know i know it's it's got a it's got a few dips here and there but it's a great album you yeah. know it's it, i I'd venture to guess very few albums are perfect, even the best ones, you know? So, uh, yeah. So that's, so once, so this is a time where you have helped segue into me because my number two is, uh, also Dr. Feelgood. Hey. Um, so I, 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 everything you said, I, I'm not, I can't add too much to it. It's a fucking huge album. Um, to me, it's a huge leap in songwriting, from theater and girls, girls, girls. I think that there's so many more memorable songs on here. The performances are great. Bob Rock really brings out the heaviness and groove in the band, even in songs yeah. that over, even so, in songs that overall don't necessarily. I don't think they're amazing. Like like slice of your pie, the groove created with the bass heavy riff and the drum beat. It just feels really good. Um, also another, another side note about, uh, slice of your pie. Um, the ending of that song is an homage to, I want you, she's so yeah. heavy by the Beatles where they even say heavy in the end of the song. You hear them go heavy. No way. Yeah. So it was supposed, <laughs> it was supposed to be an homage to that, which that's another fucking great Beatles song. Um, I'll have maybe, to check it out. Um, but yeah, there's the whole, because it ends very differently than it begins. But um, obviously you got um, Dr. Feelgood, Killer Song, Kickstart My Heart. Um, but Don't Go Away Mad, Just Go Away is actually probably my favorite song on the album. Really? It, there's something wow. about it. And it has nothing to do necessarily with it being Motley Crue because the song has been with me for so long that it's become a very different thing, I think. It, it has that what you're trying to say they were there they they may have been saying with time for change i feel that with don't go away mad just go away it yeah. feels like a song that's written in this sort of uh i'm i'm i feel relaxed in the idea that things aren't going to go the way we think they're going to go and, yeah. and and the album really brings forth this it's it's a very sort of like easygoing you know, part of the song, very just like this relationship's not going very well. Um, mm. We've lived different lives. You know what? That it, no big deal, no big deal. But then you kick in with the the 
the end part of the song with a and it really like yeah. has a moving on like we're we're for, we're forging ahead and we're going to kick some ass kind of vibe to it and the the juxtaposition of those two parts makes the song really powerful to me but it really does feel like a a, a goodbye to the 80s kind of thing i don't know why that particular song does but it just has that feeling to me um and so everything you said, I can't say much more. It is a killer album. Even the couple of weaker songs don't drag it down because they're still better than the weak songs on the two previous albums for me. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a classic at this point. And I think it, it's it's one of those albums where it's not my number one, but I totally understand somebody saying it's the best Motley Crue album. Cause I'd be like, yeah, I can't really argue with you. It's all the elements are there. Um, so yeah, that's my number two. I, I can't, I can't add much to what you said. So let's just, let's skip on to, to our very conflicting number ones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number one, my number one Motley Crue record is girls, girls, girls. All right. Now, let's hear it. Now I have a few I have a few reasons. My, my my first reason probably being is it was my first Motley Crue album. So there's already like a connection to it on a on a nostalgia level. But I do feel as though that there is a level to it that it's it's the perfect party album. Like the album it's the album Theater of Pain could have been. Like Taking the previous album's sound and upping the ante in both songwriting and production, it's pretty much non-stop good time music with the exception of the short Nona interlude and the final anti-love ballad of You're All I Need, which had a controversial video depicting a murder. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so let's just get right into it. Um, Obviously, the one-two punch of Wildside and Girls, Girls, Girls tells you that it's time to get the coke out. This is going to be fucking wild. You know, <laughs> this this album, they, they really do set the tone for pretty much the rest of the album. And the reason I love this album so much is because of how consistent it is to, to the vibe. I don't think any other Motley album is as consistent with a vibe as this one i feel like this one was designed for a party you know with the exception of a couple but but i'll get that i'll get to that in a second okay dancing on glass and bad boy boogie also carry the same good time rock and roll feel of the record all this album wants to do is have a good time now nona is kind of a short intermission telling you to switch to side b in a moment to continue the ride but like originally that was going to be a full-on ballad and there's a full unreleased version of it and it was actually a ballad i think nicky wrote about his grandmother who had passed away recently but i think things transpired that they decided hey they, they, i i don't remember specifics but they thought hey maybe this doesn't you know fit the rest of the album so I feel like of all of their 80s stuff, this is the most generation swine moment throughout their whole <laughs> throughout their whole thing because that the Nona part is very out of left field. And I feel yeah. like they they said to him, "Okay, 
we can put the song on the album as long as it's a 40 second mini track that doesn't go anywhere now i don't know if that's how it went that sounds kind of shitty but at the same i I feel i feel like if it if it's if it's what you're saying i feel like they should have just put it at the very end yeah You, you know like you know like when you watch a movie and somebody in the movie dies the movie ends and then they say in loving memory of yeah i feel like nona should have been an in loving memory of part of the album because right in the middle it 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 takes away from the album. Yeah. Like, I suppose on like the one hand, if you are switching sides on a record, I think Nona is the track changer, but you know that I have to, I have to, I have to look, I have the vinyl of this, but I don't remember, but yeah, I guess it makes more sense that way. I think I suppose as well, just going on with the, with the party vibe kind of thing. If someone really is spinning this thing at a party, this is almost like <laughs> this thing really is almost like the cue to hey you know you, we're running out of song flip to uh, flip to the other side <laughs> you know it's just so there's no awkward silence but yeah um, five years dead picks up that party pace again but I but I really want to p- unpack all in the name of rock or all in the name of <laughs> because it straddles the same kind of creepy line as wingers 17 like it's a great party song but the underage implications of the lyrics will make you very uncomfortable like yeah i don't want this to be one of my favorite songs on the album but it just rules musically but like especially when i'm driving and singing along to the lyric like you say you say illegal. I say legal's never been my thing. I just think, wow, that's a really creepy thing to say, <laughs> especially yeah. since this is about a fifteen-year-old girl. Jesus, like it's we. It's weird how acceptable that was around that time to be into young girls. Yeah, it's, it's very weird. Like I, I remember playing um, Vice City, and on the like one of the radio DJs on the rock station turns around and says, "Hey, if you want to make it down to the rock show this weekend, we're looking for underage girls or something like that." <laughs> it's, it's, and it just it just made me laugh because I just think, wow. Yeah, the, that decade was kind of filthy. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it, just continuing on. Next up, another party song, Something for Nothing, again. Rocking tunes, bro. You can't go wrong with this album, really, you know, for, for a good time. <laughs> but now, aside from the interlude, Nona, this is the only full-on ballad on the album with you're all i need now it's got a dark edge to it his video was even banned from mtv for depicting a murder scene where a man kills his girlfriend off screen but it was enough to get it banned the song is essentially a gruesome take on a breakup song inspired by a dark time in Nikki six's love life and um yeah that one kind of throws the mood a little bit it's a good song don't get me wrong it's a good song but Lastly, after kind of a bummer, it's a great song, but it, it, it does disrupt the party flow. So this album closes out on an awesome live cover of Jailhouse Rock. You, can, you, can you say live with quotation marks? Yeah, live. <laughs> do, you, do you not hear the crowd noise skipping and starting over, oh, over yeah. and over again? Yeah. It literally goes, shh, shh, <laughs> I'm like, all right, it's live. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, basically, that cover of Jailhouse Rock really wraps up the album exactly how it should, and that like that 
kind of thing going it's a, on at it's the a end. fun closer it, for sure it overall I, I think i think of all of the albums i feel like this one captured the fun side of motley crew the best because yeah. every pretty much like the whole album's vibe is wild rock and roll fucking let's let's just have a good time but yeah that is why girls 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 is my favorite motley album all right so my number one is obviously shout at the devil from 1983 and really with this album I I don't really have anything new to say about it. I think all of the reasons why a lot of people love this album is the reason why I love it. It's, it's, it's a classic album. It's probably in, to me, it's the most unique Motley Crue album. It's the one where I think they made the biggest statement and it's, I don't know, it's, it's the one, it sticks out to me from all of their other stuff because I think even the albums where they nailed it, you know, like your Dr. Feelgoods, I think there were other bands doing similar stuff in 1989. Yeah. And I think Shout at the Devil, it really doesn't sound like anything else from 1983. Like there were other hard rock bands, but if you take like the first Rat album, the first Rat album doesn't sound like shout at the devil even though they're considered in the same family of bands but um obviously the title track of the album is it's just fucking classic looks that kill has so many amazing guitar riffs in it um that's like a guitar player song just to play some fun shit you play looks that kill (laughs) um bastard's amazing the helter skelter cover is amazing it, it's it, it's sometimes it's kind of cool that you go first with these albums because I'm like, yeah, we already talked about this. I can just <laughs> sort of, I can sort of jump around here. Um, Too young to fall in love, which that may have been the very first Motley Crue song I ever heard. I don't really remember. I just remember seeing the video f- with all the kung fu stuff in it. Yeah. Um, but it just is the most. It's the least amount of filler they have on an album. It's really consistent. The production's really good. Produced by Tom Wer- Wer- Werner. What was his name? I don't really remember, right? But he's <laughs> the same dude. The same dude that did Theater of Pain and Girls, Girls, Girls. But for some reason, this just has this big-ass kick drum sound. Mm. And, and it just sounds even you know now, because you know, obviously it's very dated, but... I feel like it sounds better than a lot of other things that came out around that time. And I don't know. It just, it's one of those things that I think if they had continued down the path of making music in this style, where they were, they were more leaning into the metal side of things than on the glammy side of things. I think we may be talking about this band in a very different way. And maybe they would have, maybe they wouldn't have ended up as popular as they became but I feel like maybe they would have been more respected mm. by your sort of average metalhead. Um, but that 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 point being made, if if your average metalhead was going to listen to a Motley Crue album, I feel like Shout at the Devil would be that album. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just one of those ones that has classic status and absolutely deserves it. Um, and um, 
even today listening to this album, I, I, I still feel like it's just, they fucking nailed it. Um, with that one. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's my number one. I don't have a lot more to add to that, but shout at the devil right there at the top. Awesome. I think uh, I've got one little thing. Like you say, um, shout at the devil theater of pain and girls, girls, girls. That's the same producer. What I find, what I find interesting is that girls, girls, girls just sounds like a much better version of theater of pain motley crew whereas like you know those two albums are very similar in the way they sound albeit girls 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 is much clearer and much more in your face but they definitely carry a similar kind of vibe whereas yeah shout at the devil i don't know whether or not it was this like big you know influx of like higher end gear that the dude had managed to get a hold of but like shout of the devil has has that slightly slightly more lo-fi thing going on and it is an older record but it does have a significantly different sounding mix to the other two albums yeah yeah also an interesting thing about the production that i don't know if this has anything to do with it but there is one other album from that era that has a similar production style um, and that is the Kiss album, Creatures of the Night. Yes. It it, it has a big-ass kick drum. It, it sounds full and heavy. And it came out, I believe, the year before Shout at the Devil. 82. So I, so I don't know if they had some influence and maybe the guys were like, hey, can we get a sound like Creatures of the Night? Because... Yeah. So yeah. So now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh yeah. So I guess they do. It, it, they are kind of related. Those two albums do kind of go together, in in sonically anyway. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So so Tom Worman is the name of the producer. But um. And I don't know if he produced Creatures of the Night. I feel like I want to do like a really quick Google to see if uh if if he produced that album. Do it. Um. Hold on. Wiki- Wikipedia Creatures of the Night, produced by. Uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> okay, Michael James Jackson produced that album with Paul and Gene. So never mind. Um, it's just a similar aesthetic with the sound style. But um, yeah, it, I guess you, I guess you're right. It is. It is. If you're talking about the same producer, the 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 two following albums feel related, whereas Shout of the Devil does not feel related yeah. to those two albums at all. Um, so really, if you wanted to make a an argument. Shout of the Devil should be lower on my list because it doesn't sound as much like a Motley album as we would end up hearing from them. Mm. But uh, still my favorite anyway. At, at the end of the day, the, the beautiful thing about music is, you know, despite so many fa- factors in it, it is pretty much all subjective, you know? So it's, yeah, yeah like, and I, and I think it's cool as well that, you know, our rankings are, are in the same ballpark, but higher and lower for different different reasons and that that's yeah. that's why i love doing this because it's it's same here it's nice to have a like fresh pair of ears to kind of let me know why the mix of theater of pain is trash <laughs> <laughs> yeah go listen to use it or lose it and be ruined forever uh, i, I um, i'm looking so, forward to it <laughs> so i guess on that note since this was another course sort of longer one let's wrap it up right um, on uh, thanks everyone for joining us for part two of the Motley Crew Cranked and Ranked. If you're 
listening to this one first, um, that's weird. So you should go back <laughs> and listen to the other one and forget this one altogether. No. Um, so yeah, um, like I, I think I mentioned on the last episode, um, you know, if you like kind of what we got bringing, we, what we got bringing, apparently I've talked too much now. Um, We're spent. If you, if you, if you, yeah, if you like our, our perspectives, you know, I have a, a YouTube channel under Old Head and Eddie Sparks has one under his name as well. Um, go look us up if you haven't. Um, obviously, if you're watching this on YouTube, thanks. And go watch our other videos. Go subscribe to, to Eddie Sparks' channel. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's all I got. Do you have any parting words for this episode? Uh, should I do my catchphrase again? Hold on. Let's, let's, let's do, let's get to the very end. So your catchphrase can be the last thing everybody hears, because I think that that's, that's the way we need to end things. Okay, cool. Cause it's, it, it's, it's such a brilliant catchphrase. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, uh, once again, thanks for listening to cranked and ranked. We'll be back, uh, in a week or two, uh, with another band, but we'll probably try to vary it up even more. We did some grunge. We did some eighties metal. Uh, we'll probably try maybe even get a little heavier. We'll see what happens, but either way, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Catchphrase, sir. Later, dude.